Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We started our sermon series through Hebrews last week, and we're picking back up in verse 5 this morning, and we're going to finish chapter 1, Lord willing. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 1, I want to do two things before I pray, and two things I want to pray about before we get into the text. First, uh, I want us to pray and give thanks to God for... Uh, a member of Crosspoint, Mike Taylor and his wife Karen. Many of you know that Mike had a brain bleed two days before Christmas, December 23rd, very critical, and then was rushed up to Grady Hospital in Atlanta, had brain surgery there to relieve the pressure. He's back in Columbus as of this week now, rehabbing at Piedmont North. He's doing well. I believe Mike and Karen may be watching the Uh, live stream right now. So we love you, Mike and Karen, and we're thankful for his recovery. And Mike's doing well. I was able to visit him this week, and he is, uh, Tyler and I work out with Mike in the gym in the mornings, and Mike is in his late 70s, going on his late 20s. He's as strong as a bull, and uh, he's just doing really well. And secondly, I want us to pray for our nation today, January 22nd. 1973, exactly 50 years ago, our, our Supreme Court uh, legalized abortion in the landmark case Roe versus Wade. And as we know, this past year, it was overturned at least to some degree on a federal level. And now it's kind of been kicked down to the states, each individual state to determine. And I want us to pray for us as a nation and for us as a church, for the Christians in our nation to be a compassionate and courageous voice in a land that has, over the past 50 years, murdered 60 million of God's creations. And then I want us to pray for this text this morning, that we would turn our attention to Hebrews and understand what the Lord is saying. So there's lots to do this morning. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for our dear brother Mike and Karen. We thank you for his recovery for his strength. We thank you for the physicians that have treated him and done so well. Thank you for your grace to our brother. We can't wait to see him back among us, worshiping with us. Lord, we pray for our nation. We, words really fail us. The grief, the lamentation that we should feel for these past 50 years In many ways, for our indifference on some level, Lord, we repent of that. Lord, we pray in a a land of wickedness that you would bring about righteousness. We pray that you would raise up politicians that would enact laws in 50 states. But we know that righteousness cannot be produced by the law certainly not by the law of man. Lord, would you change the hearts of people? 
would you cause our nation to turn back to God? And would you use churches like Crosspoint that love Christ and his gospel? Would you use us to be a beautiful biblical mix of courage and compassion, courage in the face of evil and compassion to broken sinners? I know that even in this room, there are people that have maybe participated in or had an abortion. Let them know that if they are trusting in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And then as Paul said earlier, Jesus is the one who says, come to me. Let them know that there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Lord, also make us a bold witness. Make us people that don't just complain nationally, but care locally. Thank you for the people in this room, a church full of people that are involved in foster care for vulnerable children and have adopted children who might have otherwise had their life snuffed out. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, it seems overwhelming to us to think about this. May it, may it not just be something we occasionally pray about, but Lord, help us to be a church that cares deeply for the cause of the unborn. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to this text, may Jesus become sweeter to us. That's the greatest need in this next moment here, that Jesus would become greater and more superior to anything else in our life. Lord, let it not just be another Sunday, but let it be a day when we encounter the living God in the face of God through your Son, Jesus Christ, in your word. Spirit, would you move like a mighty rushing wind through this place? Would you make your people more like Jesus? And would you, any that are gathered here today that do not know the Lord, would you give them a heart to believe? And would you do this all for your glory and for our good? And we pray it all. In Jesus' name, in utter dependence on him. Amen. Okay, let me read Hebrews chapter 1. Our text is verses 5 through 14, but I think it would be helpful for us to just read verses 1 through 4 again, bridging into our text, verses 5 through 14. So let me read Hebrews chapter 1, and then we're going to work our way through this, Lord willing, briskly. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3. Remember, verse 3. Verse 3 is, is just one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. Verse 3. He, speaking of the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, here's the outline today to help us understand this text. I want us to look at first the Son, then secondly, the servants, speaking of the angels, and then thirdly, the application. That's what I think this passage is about. Here's the point of Hebrews in an overall sense. It is meant, it's a letter given to us to show God's people the superiority of Christ the Son. There was a group of people, the Hebrews, that this was written to, Jewish Christians in the first century, probably in Rome, who were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to the law. And the point of Hebrews is saying to them, don't go back. They were enduring persecution. They were likely receiving social criticism and ostracism, ostracizing. I'm making up words, but I think you understand where I'm coming from. They were being ostracized by a hostile Roman empire that recognized Judaism but didn't recognize Christianity. And so there was this temptation to go back to Judaism. That's what's happening. And the writer is writing to the people there in Rome, the early Christians, the early Jewish Christians, encouraging them to stick with Christ, to hold on to their confession. And the point that he's wanting to make all through Hebrews is that Jesus is better than the old covenant. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than all of that. And now here in the second half of Hebrews chapter one, the first four verses seem pretty clear, but now he takes this turn where he introduces angels as a point of comparison between Jesus and angels. And we may be wondering, well, why does he introduce angels? Were the, were the people that he's writing, these early Jewish Christians in Rome, were they sort of obsessed with angels? And so were they thinking that maybe angels were, were greater than Jesus? Well, maybe, but I don't think that's the situation. The reason he brings up angels is because in the mind of a first century Jew, they would have held a high place in their minds for angels and their role in the Old Covenant. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, for example, in, he, in Galatians chapter 3, I, I think it's verse 19, Paul writes that the law came through, it was given through angels through an intermediary, meaning Moses. And so for the first century Jew, they're thinking of angels. When they think of angels, they don't just merely think of some powerful angelic being, 
although certainly that was the case. But they are specifically, and what the writer is getting at here, is specifically the angelic role in bringing about the old covenant, bringing about the law, bringing about the word that Moses gave to his people. And so this is a kind of building block in the logic of Hebrews. The writer is wanting to show the superiority of the Son over and against the angels, Moses, the law, the priesthood, and everything in the Old Covenant. Now, here's two lines of reasoning that that we just have to see in Hebrews, and it's going to keep coming up again and again. The writer of Hebrews is going to show, he's going to emphasize the superiority of Jesus along two lines of reasoning. And this is really, really interesting, and it's really important, I think, to get to the heart of Hebrews. One, he's going to talk to us about the superiority of the Son just because of who he is as the divine Son, the the, the second person of the Trinity, the, the creator, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. But secondly, and this is where it gets really, we need to think about this, he's going to talk about the Son's superiority, not merely because of who he is as God the Son, co-eternal with the Father, but because of what he has done, what he's actually accomplished. In fact, we, we see that in the first four verses that we looked at last week. He, he talks about Jesus being the co-creator and how he is sustaining all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is superior merely. He's always been. He always has been. He's the alpha, the omega, no beginning, no end, the superior son. But the really interesting thing about what the writer is saying about Jesus is he's not only superior because he's God, but because of what he has actually done in his incarnation. And look at verse 4 before we get into looking at the Son. He says something really interesting. He says about Jesus that he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, if Jesus is God the Son, if he's God co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit... How can he become anything? God can't become anything. God is. God never changes. And how can Jesus inherit anything if everything is already his? He's made everything. How can he inherit anything? And that's the distinction that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to make for us. He's wanting to show us that Jesus is not only God. He's not only God the Son. He is the Son who became a man who actually in time accomplished salvation for us. Now, why, why this distinction? I think the author wants to give us a picture of the person and work of Jesus so that we know that the one that we're coming to is not distant in the heavens, but he's here for us and we can draw near to him and we can hold fast to him. I think that's what's going on, especially in this, in this passage today. So let's look first at the sun quickly. Now, as I read that, I think I won't ask you to admit this, but we, we piled together here in verses 5 through 14 uh, about seven Old Testament passages. And if you're reading Hebrews, the second part of Hebrews chapter 1, you can kind of get lost in the weeds. What's going on here? Well, let me sort of orient you to the flow of verses 5 through 14. The writer takes seven Old Testament passages... And he arranges them into three pairs, so, so three pairs of two, and, and he's going to say something about Jesus, 
And then the final seventh Old Testament passage is going to be like a capstone, kind of like the grand finale. And he's wanting to teach us something about the Son. He's wanting to share with us, show us the superiority of the Son over angels. So let's look at the first pair, verse 5. In verse 5, there's two Old Testament quotes. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? That's a rhetorical question, meaning none of the angels. He he hasn't said this, so he's he's wanting to show Christ's superiority. And he quotes now Psalm 2, verse 7, where the psalmist says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, now he quotes 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And so what he's doing is is he's taking these Old Testament passages, this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and he is applying them to Jesus. So I think it would be helpful for us to actually read them. Let me go to second, let me go to Psalm 2. He quotes verse 7, but I want you to understand the context of the point the writer is making from the Old Testament about Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Doesn't that just sound like a commentary on current events, by the way? It's happening then, it's happening now. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is the Lord speaking, and he's saying, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And who is this king? Who is this sun king? Well, he tells us in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so Psalm 2, applied to Jesus, is God saying to the Son that I've put you on the throne. Now let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the other Old Testament verse. that Just in one verse here in verse 5 of our text, Hebrews 1, that the writer applies to Jesus. So what's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 7? David has been anointed king. And he's sort of talking to his prophet Nathan. He says, you know, it's not right that God lives in tents and I'm living in this nice house made of wood. I think I'll build God a house for him. And God says, well, wait a minute, through Nathan. I never asked you to build me a house. Sit down, David. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And he says, actually, I'm the one that's going to build a house through you. And so this is what Nathan said. This is what God says through the prophet to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is all being applied to Jesus. Let me start in verse 12. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So there's this offspring that's going to come from David through, through his line, from your body. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me 
a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, but I, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so what is the writer of Hebrews doing here? He's taking these Old Testament prophecies, promises, and he's applying them to Jesus. He's the one that is the son. He's the one that will actually bear iniquity and take the stripes for our iniquity. And he's the one whose kingdom will be established forever. And he's the one that will inherit the nations and everything is his. That's the point that the writer is making in verse 5. Let's look at the second pair, verses 6 and 7. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote of Psalm 104, verse 4. So basically, he's saying, look, this son is the one who's been enthroned as the king and these angels worship him. So, again, remember the greater point that the angels through whom the Old Testament came are worshiping Jesus. So, therefore, Jesus is greater than them. Angels are important, I think, is the point that the writer of Hebrews wants to make. But they are secondary. Okay, then the third pair. And he's going to kind of elevate it here, and he's going to get back into this idea of the Son as the Creator, as God Himself. And he says in verse 8 through 12, but of the Son, he says, this is God speaking about the Son. This is amazing. This is God speaking about Jesus. So this is God talking about God. So this is an Old Testament sense. would have been a verse that the Old Testament reader, Israel, would have applied to God the Father. God the Father applies to the Son. So God the Father is attributing deity to the Son by applying this verse through the writer of Hebrews to Jesus. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's Psalm 46, verses 6 and 7. So there we see Jesus as being the one who actually isn't only God, but has actually come down to become a man who is a king enthroned, and in his actual life loved righteousness, restored righteousness, hated wickedness, resisted sin, and won back righteousness for humanity, and then laid down his life on the cross to absorb the wrath of God, who for the joy that was set before him, that we'll get to eventually in Hebrews chapter 12, he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, and so then he picks up the theme of the oil of gladness. So Jesus is happy to come and be enthroned and die on the cross for us for the joy that was set before him, for the throne that he would inherit because of the redemption that he accomplished. That's what's going on in Psalm 45. And, and, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So this is speaking of the Son. 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. So again, just attributing the greatness of the grandeur, of the splendor, of the glory of God the Son. That's what's going on in 8 through 12. And now verse 13, the grand finale, Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we will come to again and again as we work our way through Hebrews. Psalm 110, I think, I think, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I'm about 99% sure that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm, maybe the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament in all of the Bible. So if the New Testament writers are quoting Psalm 110 as much as they do in the New Testament, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it several times through Hebrews, and in other places in the New Testament, other writers do too, Psalm 110 is really, really important. And look at verse 13, and this is a quote of Psalm 110, verse 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I want us to just look exactly at what it says in Psalm 110, verse 1. This is really just a, a, an amazing uh, passage. Verse 1, this is David speaking, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, so this is the Father speak. This is how Hebrews interprets verse 1. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And notice what the writer of Hebrews does with verse 1. He applies this conversation to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son in heaven. The Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's, that's what... This is, saying, this is saying glorious things about the Son. So when we read all of those Old Testament passages, let's not get lost in the weeds. The writer of Hebrews is making a point about the glory of the Son over and against angels. And then let's look at what he says about these servants, the angels. Just one verse, verse 14. The servants. He says about them, are they not all ministering spirits, spirits or servants, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he just gives one verse there, and he mentioned them earlier as an Old Testament quote, but he's just basically saying, okay, the Son is greater than these angels. These angels are the one that the Old Covenant came through, so focus on the Son. And then he says something that I think bears us thinking about. He says, what are these servants? They're just ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, which is God's people. So notice a couple things about these servants. Let's, let's just spend a little bit of time. The focus is not on angels in this passage, but I think it does warrant us thinking about them biblically. What are angels? What do they do? And what is our relationship to angels? Notice here that angels are important but they are not the focus. It's as if the author is saying, man, angels are amazing. They're really great. They're powerful. They're important in God's plan. But Christ is so much greater, so pay attention to him. He's the point. 
And having said that, like I mentioned just a second ago, this does give us an opportunity to think biblically about angels. So just a few quick points about angels before we get into, I think, the meat, which is the application. What are we to make of this interesting and maybe strange, unfamiliar portion of Hebrews chapter 1 where he uses all these Old Testament passage, passages? First, let's think about angels. Do we, have, do we have guardian angels? That's a question that we might ask from this passage because it says that ministering spirits have been sent out to serve us, those who are to inherit salvation. So do we have guardian angels? I don't know. Maybe. I think you could deduce that's a possibility from that verse. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 says that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, so maybe uh, we have personal guardian angels. I don't know. I think it's probably better to think that maybe like angels, it's not like they're playing man-on-man defense. They're maybe playing more like zone defense. But maybe we have, you know, God just dispatches them when he needs them. Maybe we do have personal angels. But I don't think that's the focus of the Bible's revelation of angels. Um, Here's another question that I think we need to think about. Are Christians who have died in Christ and are now in heaven angels? Sometimes we hear that sort of language, like somebody that's gone on, my, he's my angel looking over me. No, I think it's important for us to understand that no, people that have died in Christ are not now angels. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 23 through 24 says, and this is a glory, I can't wait to get to this sometime, eventually, but you have come, this is speaking about eternity, this is speaking about heaven. Speaking about our rest that awaits us. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's Christians. And to Jesus, that's Christians that have died. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So notice there in that text, he's differentiating the, the occupants of uh, this heavenly Jerusalem. There's angels there, and there are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's who we're coming to when we come to the Lord, this, 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 this assembly of the firstborn, the assembly, the church in heaven. So there's a distinction made between Human beings who have died and are with Christ and these angelic beings that have been created and are part of God's host of heavens. Another question that we might ask is, do we ever interact with angels? I think the answer to that is quite possibly. Again, at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, there's this sort of just out of nowhere, just kind of a blip on the radar screen, this little statement, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So yes, I think it's quite possible that God still uses angels. Certainly we see it in the Old Testament. We see some interactions with, like for, for example, Abraham and Moses with angels, and they weren't aware of that. And I think that the Lord certainly can do that today. But what's our relationship or rank in regard to angels? What, 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 how should we think about angels in God's plan? Well, I think they're, they're created, like everything, to give glory to God. But where do we rank in regards to angels in God's plan? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, 
And the point he's making in this chapter is that Christians should judge one another so that the world won't have to judge us. And he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, so, so we have a, a higher rank than angels. They're, they're part of God's creation, but, but, but they, they are not preeminent. They're not primary in God's creation. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and this is a glorious verse, he's speaking about the Old Testament prophets who wrote the Old Testament, which the author of Hebrews has now just dove into and applied to Jesus. And he says of these prophets in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, the prophets that the apostles preached their word that you now have as the gospel. And this is what he says about that good news preached from the apostles and the prophets to us. It's things into which angels long to look. So think about how glorious salvation is. These glorious heavenly beings are on their tippy toes in heaven longing to look into the glory of the Son who has become a man who has defeated death, won back righteousness for the human race, laid down his life for all those that the Father has given him, and has promised to bring them all the way home. That is so amazingly glorious that angels who are around God all the time long to look in to the good news that's preached to us. I find that glorious. So, so what do angels do? Uh, again, this isn't the focus of the text, but I think it bears teaching on this. What do angels do? They, they glorify God. They carry out His purposes and help God's people. So we should thank God for them. But they should not be our focus. And that's the point, I think, of Hebrews chapter 1. He's taking these glorious heavenly beings. And he's saying, Jesus is so far superior to them. And they were primary agents of God bringing about the old covenant. They were the ones that spoke to Moses. They were the ones that brought the law to Moses. on Mount. They were the ones that... God, all these wonderful, glorious, mysterious things that angels do and have done through the Old Covenant and still do today according to God's purposes. And he's saying they are nothing compared to the Son. I think that's the point of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. The Son is superior. So let's look at a couple points of application as we, as we conclude. First... I think this passage just highlights that the Old Testament is about Jesus, and we should read it that way. The Old Testament is about Jesus, and we should read it that way. Notice, notice what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is, he's mining the Old Testament, and he's not primarily looking at that as, as a promise to Israel as a national people or, or moral teachings, although there's much morality to be gleaned from the Old Testament. He's actually looking at these promises and this great hope, not in man's ability to get it right, but in the promises that God will come and finally save his people. And all of these promises of a son, of a king, of a priest to come 
are amplified, they're answered in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is taking these promises and he's saying they're about Christ. And so when we read the Old Testament, we should read it in that way. I think when we read the Bible in this way, we, we just, we should be struck at the divine inspiration of the scriptures and just note the unity of the Old Testament and how it blends together. Here, even this one writer of a New Testament letter, Hebrews, is taking these various Old Testament passages and blending them together, showing us how it all points to Christ. Friends, that's what Christianity is. It's not ethical lessons primarily, although there's many ethics in Christianity. It's not moral lessons. It's not better leadership. It's not this or that. It is Christ. And from everything flows Christ. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And we should read it that way. Secondly, this talk about angels in Hebrews 1 and in other places of Hebrews, I think is a reminder that there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see. Let's not, let's not as much as I want to downplay an emphasis on angels, because I think that's sort of the ultimate point of Hebrews, is, hey, look how superior the sun is to these things. Let's not neglect an understanding of angels and the angelic realm. There is a spiritual realm that we cannot see. And as people that live in 2023, where, where everything is physical and everything is efficient and there are all these inventions that make our lives more physically comfortable, we can sort of lull ourselves into this false notion that we are in control and that the physical is all that there is to see. And so we want to get prettier. We want to get better. We want to get wealthier. We want more stuff as if the whole world and all of life is just more of what we can see. And this chapter, this emphasis on angels to some degree is a reminder that what is really true is not what we can see. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, not just angels, but conversely demons and devils. He says, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, there are angels and there are demons and there are spiritual forces of wickedness meant to destroy, bent for our discouragement, bent and wholeheartedly against the purposes of God, and we should not forget that. Paul concludes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, don't lose heart, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And when we see angels mentioned in the letter of Hebrews, it should cause us to, to sort of look up from these 80 or 90 years and to remind us where we are going and what is true truer than even our physical existence, is the promise of eternity to come where we will be with him forever and ever. And part of the reason why Christians need to gather weekly is that we remind ourselves of that because it is so easy to get your head down in the muck and the mire and believe the lie that this life, this career, this situation is all that there really is. 
And when we do that, we will lose hope. That's why we come back in here and remind ourselves that heaven is the goal and this earth is fading away. In Hebrews, when we see angels mentioned, that should be a reminder of that. Thirdly, and I hope this encourages you, is that we live in the tension between already and not yet. In verse 13, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and he says something really important if we stare at it and think about it. Not just that Jesus is on the throne, as glorious as that is, and not just that Jesus, every, every enemy that Jesus has will eventually be made his footstool, but I think one of the most important ver- words in that verse, Psalm 10, verse 1, as quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, is the word until. Sit at my right hand, he says to Jesus, until I make your enemies your footstool. And friends, we are living in the tension. We're living in the white space between the comma at the end of right hand and the word until. We're living in this tension. Christ is, think about this, Christ is already seated. He is reigning. He has never not reigned. He's been the sun from the beginning of the world. He created everything that is. And the point of Hebrews primarily is that he's not just the divine son from eternity, but he is the son who has become the son, who became the incarnate son, who actually accomplished redemption, who's actually on the throne, who in his real life actually had to suffer, become like us so that we could become like him. And because of his perfect life and because of his sacrificial death and because of his victorious resurrection, he is now seated on the throne until he comes again. And we are living in between the tension between Jesus already being enthroned and the not yet reality of all of his enemies being brought under submission to him. And so we, ha- we, 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 we can ask this question. I think it's a fair question to ask. In fact, it's an honest question to ask. If God can do whatever he wants to do and he has purposes for everything, he has purposes in the enthronement of Jesus at his right hand, but the not yet fully consummated execution of his reign. That's where we're living. That's where we're living. So that's where we are. So what are God's purposes in this? To show forth the supremacy of the Son over and against this fallen, wicked world. Calling all of his people, gathering all of his elect. Bringing all of those that will turn and trust in him to his Son. So that when that day comes and redemption is finally and fully realized. As far as those coming to Jesus, all the number of his people, all the glory, all the judgment. Everything, every hill lowered, every valley filled, every pain, sin vanquished, every moment of injustice atoned for, every evil thing defeated, every moment of sickness, every cancer cell forever banished, every tear dried. When Jesus comes back, And he finally and fully makes all of his enemies, enemies, physical, spiritual, earthly, heavenly, he makes them all his footstool. And we are living 
in between that time. And God has purposes us for us to show forth the supremacy of Christ and to hold on. Which leads us to the final and fourth application. That Jesus is superior because of not only who he is, but what he has done. What he's done. He's not just worthy of our praise because he's God the Son, eternal with the Father, as true as that is. But he is superior as the Son because of what he has done and what he's accomplished. So, brothers and sisters, we can draw near to him. He is not a God distant in the heavens. He is God the Son who has come to us. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 says this glorious. I think, I think Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and I'll end with this, maybe may be the, the point, maybe the high point of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Here's the point. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So right there, bound up in that is just all this glorious Christology, all this glorious truth. He is the Son of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. But yet He's also the priest who's passed through the heavens, who's come down because we have that type of Savior. That's the point. Because of this, because He's not just God the Son from eternity, but God the Son who's become like us. He's come down for us. Because of that, let us hold fast our confession. He's better than anything that goes before Him. He's better than anything that you're holding on to now. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the one that's enthroned, friends, this is glorious. The one that's been enthroned in eternity past, no beginning, no end, has humbled himself to the point where he understands and sympathizes with our frailties, our weaknesses, our temptations, our sin. So the point of Hebrews is, come to him. Don't just learn more about God the Son and all of His glory, as wonderful as that is, but see the sympathetic high priest and come to Him. Praise Him for who He is. Yes, a thousand times yes, but praise Him for what He has done. Verse 16, let us sin, let us sin with confidence. Let us with confidence, sinners, Sinners with no right to come to the enthroned creator of the universe. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's not just a throne of glory. It's a throne of grace. Grace is part of the glory. So so this is verse 16. Come on. Verse 16. Why can we come with confidence to the most unapproachable, holy place in all of creation? Because the Son has become a high priest who's passed through the heavens, who became like us and bore our sin, and God punished the Son, and He enthroned the Son. He seated the Son at His right hand 
after his redemption because of what he's done for us on our behalf. So now we come, we come with confidence, not because we were Sunday school teachers or because we were preachers or because we were good dads or good moms or our babies eat kale or go to sleep to Beethoven or all these silly things or because we've got followers on social media or because we make a lot of money. What are we going to do? We're going to go to God and say, I've got stuff. I gave, I gave. We, what are we going to do, Crosspoint? We built a church in Uganda, God will. Aren't you proud of us? Aren't you proud of us? I, 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 I'm relatively righteous compared to these poor schmucks that I worship with for about 40 years. Aren't you proud of me, God? No, that's not why we have confidence. Here's the point of Hebrews. Come, not because you have anything to be confident in, but because God the Son became like you. He humbled himself. He took the punishment that should have been ours. He's the priest that offered the sacrifice, and it was the sacrifice of himself. His life, his righteousness, that is holy enough to atone for all of the sin of all those that would ever come, and he extinguishes it, and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Not only does he take the sin, but because he is completely holy, eternally righteous, he now gives his righteousness, which is given to his people, so those weak and wounded, sick and sore, those sinners that are coming with confidence to the most holy place in all of the universe, come not because they are good but because he is good and Hebrews the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see that trust in Jesus hold fast to him you're a Christian you're caught in sin you're you've had a terrible week you're giving yourself over to stuff come to him draw near to him he is good you are a person who doesn't think that you're the type of person that God can save. And you're wondering, you're thinking, boy, this message seems attractive to me on some level. But what must I do to be saved? No, 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 no. That's not your confidence in what you can do. You can draw nigh to Jesus. You can come to him. Your confidence can become in him, not in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved, to be born again, to have your sins forgiven to be redeemed is to have confidence that Jesus has done what only he can do and that you can't do it and your only plea is Christ. Friends, that's the point of Hebrews. And you're going to hear that sermon a few more times but as we go through this book. But that's the point of Hebrews. Come to him. Come to the one who is superior. Let's pray. Lord, let us see these things. Let us not get lost. As glorious as your word is, I know that we come to the Bible with 21st century, often scripturally um, weak eyes, and so it's harder for us to see what's going on with all of these Old Testament quotes maybe than a first century Jew. We lament that but we don't want to lose what this text is saying. That Jesus is superior. He does what angels can't do. He does what the law can't do. He does what Moses can't do. He does what the priesthood can't do. He does certainly what we can't do. He opens up a new and living way. 
for sinners to come, to come confidently to the throne of grace and glory. Lord, may we come afresh today as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.